Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm really excited about what we're going to be talking about today because we're going to be talking about a new FIRE book. FIRE's put out a number of books in our short 17-year history, and we actually found it after the writing of a book. Uh, Alan Charles Coors, he's a professor of the Enlightenment at the University of Pennsylvania, and Harvey Silverglate, he's a civil liberties attorney based in the Boston area. In 1998, they wrote The Shadow University, The Betrayal of Liberty on America's Campuses. It's uh, it's it's about censorship on campus. It's about due process violations on campus, civil liberties violations on campus. Uh, and after they wrote the book, it got a lot of press attention, and they received a lot of pleas for help from student and faculty members who had nowhere else to turn. And unfortunately, Alan had a full-time job. Harvey had a full-time job. So they didn't have the bandwidth to respond to all these requests or a vehicle to respond to all these requests. So they founded FIRE and co-founded FIRE in 1999. And we've been at it. Uh, We've been responding to these quests, um, trying to educate student and faculty members about their rights for 17 years. And, And during that time, part of that educational process is writing books. So in the mid-2000s, we put out our guides to student rights on campus. And if you're a student or faculty member, um, I really encourage you to check these out. Uh, They're on the publications page of FIRE's website at thefire.org. We're trying to update them. Um, We're in the process of updating them right now. We've updated our free speech guide and our due process guide to incorporate new case law about student rights on campus. Uh, So we put those books out in the mid-2000s. And in 2012, we put out Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship, and the, and the End of American Debate. It's written by FIRE President and CEO Greg Lukianoff. It's about his decade-plus on the front lines fighting censorship on campus. Um, and then two years later, in 2014, he put out another book, uh, Freedom From Speech. And it's about the newer trends that he'd seen uh, involving campus censorship uh, since he put out Unlearning Liberty in 2012. These student-led drives for censorship uh, disinvitations of invited speakers to campus, requests for disinvitations of invited speakers to campus, uh, microaggression policing, uh, demands of professors to incorporate trigger warnings uh, into their teaching. So all those books, The Shadow University, our guides to student rights on campus, Unlearning Liberty, Freedom from Speech, they're all available on Amazon. They're all available uh, for more. There's more information about them on FIRE's publication page on our website. Uh, But today we're going to be talking about Twisting Title IX, which is a short broadside written by FIRE Executive Director Robert Shibley about the history and abuses that FIRE's seen of Title IX on college campuses. The book comes out on Tuesday, September 27th. It's available on Amazon for pre-order right now. Robert's on the show with us today. Robert, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Twisting Title IX, before we jump into the topic of the book, uh, and the details of it. What is Title IX? Well, Title IX is the federal law that was passed in 1972 uh, that's intended to eliminate sex discrimination uh, in uh, federally funded educational programs. Um, And when it comes to uh, the college arena, that actually includes, and a lot of people don't realize this, uh, 
uh, both all public schools and the vast, vast majority of private schools. Um, and that's because it applies if your school takes a single uh, Stafford loan or Pell Grant or, uh, you know, any kind of research grant that comes from the federal government, uh, then Title IX applies. So uh, you may be going to a fairly religious school or, you know, a school that's very small. Odds are very good that Title IX still applies on your campus. Okay. And there's something like only at like five or six schools that don't take any federal funding whatsoever. That's right. You know, we, there's no official list. Um, you know, we, we know of about five or six. I'll, I'll bet there are a few more. There are about 4,000 uh, colleges and universities, uh, four-year college and universities in the United States. Um, so perhaps there's some more uh, that are out there, um, but th- there are very, very few. Okay. Well, Title IX, the way you described it, seems safe enough. Um, seems like there's probably not much to be to be concerned with there, but your book argues that there is. Why is FIRE concerned about Title IX? Well, unfortunately, Title IX has really become unmoored uh, from its uh, original intention uh, to uh, you know, work on eliminating sex discrimination in many circumstances um, in colleges and universities. Um, and federally funded educational programs. You know, it's interesting. Um, Title IX is actually um, the the uh, active part of it is only about 39 words, um, and the the rest of Title IX there are hundreds more words of it, but it's all the exceptions, and those are exceptions uh, for organizations like fraternities and sororities, uh, for boys state and girls state, um, and, and scouting programs. There's even an exception in there for beauty contests. Uh, colleges are allowed to allowed to have those. Um, so Title IX was you know passed to eliminate sex discrimination in these in these programs, and that's when uh, you would have college. Colleges uh, that were, uh, you know, funded by federal money and would say only admit admit men or only, um, you know, admit women um, and have a, um, you know, policies that, uh, you know, even if they would not only admit men or women, but other ones that made, uh, you know, women not able to be part of different programs. So Title IX, uh, you know, eliminated that and actually did a a very effective job of that. I think most prominently uh, this happened in the area of uh, athletics. It was actually, you know, in terms of of legal uh, attempts to end discrimination, uh, pretty fast and and pretty effective. Uh, The problem is, is that um, it's also been seized on by, uh, unfortunately, the federal government now um, to start to limit uh, the rights of students to both due process on college campuses um, and, of course, core uh, fires core uh, concern, which is freedom of speech. Was there was there any debate when they were passing Title IX about these free speech concerns, which we'll get into in a second? What was the debate like? Well, the debate seemed to be, and and you know, it, it's surprising actually how little it seems like there is out there. When I was doing research for the book, I looked um, in the archives of the New York Times and Washington Post, figuring they'd be the most likely uh, to really cover uh, the dispute there. And there was actually very little in Title IX, and what there was uh, seemed to be uh, surrounding the issue of athletics. Um, you know, I, I think it's. I think most people understood what it was going to do in terms of academic programs, and, I, and it didn't seem like there was a lot of resistance uh, to that. I think the concern was about athletics, and you know, of course, up to you know, up until the last few years, really, almost all of the uh, turmoil or disagreement around Title IX had to do with its effect on college athletics. Yeah. So let's get into a little bit to how it's expanded, or at least the debate surrounding t- Title IX has expanded beyond college athletics. And, and and for you, it 
at least the story you tell in this book, it goes back to uh, the 1980s and a, a certain feminist scholar, Catherine McKinnon. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's right. It actually goes back a little bit further than that. It goes back to um, a, a, a strategy that uh, was put together by Catherine McKinnon as a uh, recently graduated and, and probably also partially while she was in law school at Yale University, a very early case um, called Alexander versus Yale uh, was really the first legal attempt to expand Title IX uh, from, you know, what people generally thought of as being its purpose. Um, and Catherine McKinnon had the had the idea, and I'm, I'm sure others worked with her, but she's really, uh, I guess, the leading figure on this and has been for a long time. She had the idea that um, Title IX could be used to also address the problem of sexual harassment on campus. And so in Alexander v. Yale, uh, I believe there were six or seven plaintiffs uh, that were uh, that sued Yale University um, with various uh, complaints about various kinds of sexual harassment. Um, all but one of the complaints were actually uh, dismissed um, you know, before uh, really the court got going on considering them. And, and the final one, uh, the court didn't actually find uh, enough evidence to suggest that it happened. Uh, but the court did in that case uh, make the determination, which is what they were looking for, that yes, um, you know, sexual harassment could be treated as a form of discrimination uh, that would be prevented under Title IX. So that was 1977. But wasn't, um, wasn't, isn't sexual harassment already illegal? Like, uh, why do you need to bring it within the fold of Title IX? Well, sexual harassment um, at the time was – certain forms of sexual harassment um, are illegal because they involve other kinds of behavior. For instance, um, if you are sexually harassing someone in a way that uh, you know is, is, is groping them or touching their genitalia in some way, uh, that's likely to be some form of battery or, or sexual battery. So um, it would be illegal for that reason. But uh, the idea of sexual harassment is kind of a, a – a freestanding uh, legal problem, particularly um, in employment, which is where it happened first, uh, was really only, you know, really only came in um, in the 1980s. And, and as we know it, um, it really came in in a case uh, called Meritor v. Vinson, and that established the idea of hostile environment sexual harassment. So that's a kind of sexual harassment that actually uh, there doesn't have to be uh, intent behind it. Um, it, can, it can just be based on an environment that is seen as uh, offensive um, or hostile to either men or women, but, but generally it, it applied, you know, it, it's been applied uh, with regard to women. Um, so you could have a situation where your workplace, even though nobody was actively trying to harass you, let's say they were hanging up uh, centerfolds all over the place. Um, even if that wasn't targeted at any woman um, and they and there wasn't a an intent to make people uncomfortable, the fact that that's likely to make people uncomfortable, uh, there, you know, in 1986 was ratified by the Supreme Court as a, as a reason to find that sexual harassment was occurring. Um, so that happened in the employment context first and, you know, soon afterwards, it followed um, in the context of Title IX, which which is really only has to do with education, does not have to do with employment. Gotcha. So so where did where did it go after this night? Uh, it was 1986 case. What, did the scholars like Catherine McKinnon McKinnon uh, go further in, in trying to get it applied to campus? Where 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 do the speech concerns come in? Because this well, this whole this hostile environment harassment quid pro quo harassment these are things that. 
people, at least today, before, you know, after 1986, acknowledge our forms of sexual harassment? How do they become problematic from a civil, liber- civil libertarian standpoint? Right. Well, the reason they've become problematic from that civil libertarian standpoint, um, I guess in the earliest days and even in the earliest days of fire, you know, fire started in 1999. Um and at that time, um, and, and I think this is still true today, most speech codes that you would see on college campuses uh, were couched in the terms of harassment. So uh, they would say that saying certain things was a form of harassment um, and that you know Title IX obviously uh, prohibited harassment. And therefore, uh, since these colleges said that this speech was harassment, well, they, they had to prevent it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, that's, that's been one of the, the oldest fights uh, that FIRE is actually engaged in is these, these abuses of harassment law. And, you know, those regulations are in there because of Title IX. Now, would they be there without Title IX? Yeah, I, I think it's probably likely that even if Title IX didn't happen, that universities would have uh, harassment laws. But certainly Title IX, um, you know, gives them that federal requirement to do so. Uh, mm-hmm. The real, I guess, the real um, explosion in the, in the problem didn't actually come until 2011, uh, where we got the first inkling that the uh, U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights, and they are the folks who enforce Title IX and several other uh, civil rights uh, statutes, um, uh, were going to start using, uh, you know, some some fairly uh, you know sketchy uh, ways of of making regulations uh, without following uh, the usual rules uh, in order to impair uh, first freedom, uh, excuse me, first due process on campus, and then uh, shortly thereafter in 2013, uh, freedom of speech. Yeah. Before we get there, what is the proper definition of sexual sexual harassment on campus, at least in the, the peer-to-peer environment, the student-to-student environment? Because campuses will write these speech codes, these anti-sexual harassment or anti-harassment codes. Um, and just because you're calling something harassment doesn't mean it's harassment from a legal definition. Just because, for example, as a comparison, I call something incitement doesn't mean that it's actually incitement from a legal standpoint. So what's the actual definition that colleges and universities should be using when they're talking about harassment or sexual harassment on campus? Well, FIRE's position, and uh, I know schools often disagree with us on this, and, um, but I, I think it's the it's the, the definition that has the most legal merit, uh, comes from the Supreme Court um, in a case, 1999 case, uh, Davis versus Monroe County Board of Education, which, believe it or not, is a really horrendous sexual harassment case that happened between uh, two fifth graders um, of all places. But the uh, court came up uh, with a standard for peer-on-peer harassment in the educational context uh, that says that if a school is going to be, uh, you know, held responsible for violating Title IX, they have to be deliberately indifferent to sexual harassment, of which they have actual knowledge, and that's so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive uh, that it can be said to deprive the uh, victims of access to the educational opportunities or benefits provided by the school. Um, and, you know, that, that sort of uh, includes a couple of other uh, requirements, which is that the harassment be discriminatory. Um, in other words, just harassment based on uh, hair color or something like that is not prevented by Title IX, and that there be some, you know, manner of targeting that it that it not just be uh, totally diffuse. Uh, that you know somebody actually has to be targeted by the harassment. And the reason uh, the Supreme Court came up with a different standard for uh, 
schools than it did for uh, the workplace is because, uh, frankly, you know, students aren't employees. I mean, they're they're closer, if anything, to, to something like a customer. And schools don't have and shouldn't have the same control uh, over what students say and do that employers have uh, over, uh, you know, what their employees say and do at work uh, for a variety of reasons that are, are maybe outside the scope. But um, either way, the, the Supreme Court put together that pretty protective, speech protective definition of um, sexual harassment. And and we think that's the one that schools should be using, but unfortunately they are not. And are they not using, well, before 2011, what was the federal government telling schools to use as a definition of sexual harassment? Well, it's pretty confusing. Um, after Davis, uh, the uh, the Office for Civil Rights in some 2001 uh, guidance that they issued, um, came up with a, a definition that instead of using and, a severe, persistent, and pervasive, uh, basically said severe or uh, persistent. Uh, and I think gotcha. that would also count pervasive. And, um, you know, lawyers know, and I, th- I think people who are thinking about it know that and and or are not the same thing, but uh, OCR has actually stood by this idea that uh, in this case, they mean the same thing. They say that that is actually in accord with the Davis definition. Um, it, it's a really strange uh, argument to make, but it's one they've been making uh, for 15 or 16 years, and it, it's hard to it's hard to take it seriously um, as an argument. It makes much more sense as, uh, unfortunately, a way that the government is trying to justify um, using a definition that they know will result in greater speech suppression, uh, while still arguing that it is consonant with what the Supreme Court is demanding. Yeah, that's strange that they would argue that that's consistent with the Davis standard when to actually make it consistent with the Davis standard, all you need to do is change a word. Yeah, I mean, you might have to do a bit more than that, but I mean, it's it's not a lot more. I mean, it really is, you know, mostly an and or situation, but um, it makes a difference. And schools know that schools try to follow OCR's advice. Uh, Fire has been, you know, spending years and years trying to get schools to to understand that's actually not what the law requires. OCR, uh, while it does have, uh, you know, the power of regulation, they're not the ones who, you know, they don't trump the court. They don't, Mm. and they certainly don't trump Congress. Um, And so that's been sort of a constant battle to try to get schools to understand that, uh, you know, even if OCR says you should be applying it in a certain way, if it's not consonant with uh, what the Supreme Court says the Constitution requires, uh, that's still not okay. There's there's not a safe harbor there. Schools have a higher duty to the Constitution than they do to, you know, whatever bureaucrats happen to be in power at OCR at the time. Well, our are students suing schools and are courts applying the Davis standard in, in, de- in determining, you know, who's right in those cases? Well, in some cases they are. The Davis standard um, is a, a standard that deals with, with Title IX specifically. So when students sue schools, um, they're gen- they, when students have a Title IX claim against schools, it has to be they, – they, they can't so easily sue over a standard like that. The way Title IX applies to students is, are they being uh, discriminated against? So often when you see student Title IX suits, uh, really the fundamental claim they have to make is that they are treating men and women uh, differently. And if they aren't mm-hmm. able to make that claim, uh, then the court you know, generally doesn't let it go forward. Um, so it, it applies in different ways, and you know, there's really no way to make it a whole ton less confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the upshot is that universities – 
you know, know or should know that the Davis standard is is the guiding uh, standard on this. And unfortunately, if anything, OCR is moving them further and further from that. Are schools more afraid of the Office for Civil Rights? And when we refer to OCR, referring to the Office for Civil Rights, the Department of Education, are, are, do you get the impression that schools are more afraid of OCR than they are of any potential litigation? Oh, absolutely. I get that sense. Um, and I, I think and that so they're that they're following OCR's definition. Oh, and absolutely. Guidance. And the reason is, is very simple, is that OCR is the agency that has the ability uh, to go to the Department of Justice and ask them, uh, you know, to go through the proceedings to cut off federal funding uh, to a school. Mm-hmm. Um, and at most schools, that would be a death sentence because they get they have a huge number of students. Obviously, we know tuition is high, you know, college costs, people are always concerned about it. Loans are really the only way many people can go, loans and grants. And so if your students can't get loans and grants, uh, then you will very quickly cease to be a going concern. Yeah. Uh, so it really is a, a death penalty kind of situation for schools, whereas a lawsuit is, you know, almost certainly not going to be a death penalty yeah. uh, for most schools. Um, so th- that, that is very terrifying, uh, to schools and, you know, I, administrators generally won't go on the record about this for, for very good reason. Uh, but that's certainly something that many of us at fire have had discussions with administrators, um, who, you know, tell us, you know, that they're, uh, they are afraid of OCR and that they're very worried that if they don't follow what they think OCR wants, that they'll be the next to be investigated and, and they could potentially face this this effective death sentence. Um, I think it is worth worth saying there, though, that OCR has actually never tried to that, go yeah. that far. They've, they've used the threat very effectively uh, for decades, but uh, school every school has ultimately settled uh, with the university rather than, than fighting it out uh, in court. And so that's never actually happened. And so we don't know how easy or hard that might actually be. Hmm. And do you think they've never gone that far? And this is just me asking for your personal opinion, because they're afraid that if they do go that far, that their legal authority to enforce Title IX in this way will be challenged in court. Uh, because the schools will have no other choice but to do so. Yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, they do have the legal authority. It was given to them. I think the the question is they're going to have to defend all of the decisions they made up to that point. Yeah. Um, so they're going to have to, you know, the court would actually have finally a way to look at all the things OCR has been doing with regard to that school and say, how much of this is actually required uh, by the various laws like Title IX uh, that you folks are supposed to be enforcing? And I, I think OCR would rather not find out the answer to that. Um, and, you know, certainly a school would finally, with its back against the wall, have, uh, you know, a, an incentive to put up the, the best possible case. Um, you can only imagine, you know, politically speaking and, and, you know, OCR is a part of the problem with OCR is it is a political agency. I mean, I under, you know, the assistant secretary is appointed by the president. They're a political appointee. And so, you know, they are not, they're not doing the same job as the courts, even though they sort of seem like uh, a fair referee. They're not, they have a a political agenda. That's Mm -hmm. just the nature of, you know, how these executive branch offices work. And so, you know, they, they have an agenda they want to push forward. And so they are not neutral. Uh, when it comes to this stuff. Um, And they also, I think, understand, let's say that, um, you know, finally, uh, you know, a huge university, you know, like, let's say Ohio State or something, they decided they were going to try to cut Ohio State off and kill it. Can you imagine the uproar if they effectively shut down Ohio State? 
Yeah. I mean, that would be such a giant political disaster um, that it's very likely that they would never try to do that. Um, so it really is kind of like a game of chicken uh, between OCR and the schools. Uh, you know, who wants to go the furthest? I, I suspect that shutting down Ohio State would not be tolerated. I, you know, I can assure you that, you know, all of the congressmen and senators from Ohio would be extremely angry about it. Um, and that would not be a fun time for, for the bureaucrats who run OCR. Yeah. Ne- nevertheless, OCR is investigating something like 200 schools right now for uh i think it might be upwards of 300 now yeah yeah uh, especially in the last couple of years the number of investigations oh it's has gone sky- it's skyrocketed since i think uh-huh. around 2014 yeah so 1972 you get this law it's mostly applied it's, it's like a 39 word law as you said uh mostly understood to apply to college athletics and schools that um you know uh are only allowing men, only allowing women, if I'm understanding that correctly, uh, but then expands into forms of sex discrimination that could have some implications uh, for speech. Um, and in the 90s and, er- and early to late 2000s, you see a lot of schools adopting anti-harassment, anti-sexual harassment codes that involve verbal conduct, which of course means speech, um, that don't meet a Davis standard or um, that are very broad and very vague and allow administrators to go after protected speech. Bring us up to today, Robert, which you, you mentioned 2011, um, but there was also something that happened in 2000. Well, what happened in 2011, very briefly, um, I know what happened in 2011, mostly deals with due process, but for That's this podcast, right. we're mostly interested in, in the speech angle. What happened in, uh, after that in 2013 as well? Right. Well, in 2011, um, OCR um, issued in April, uh, they issued a what they call a dear colleague letter uh, because it begins it's dear colleague, comma, and then they say what they're going to say that made a whole bunch of, you know, statements about how you had to obey Title IX. And uh, with a couple of new ones, Um, the the most prominent uh, being that uh, from now on, when you were adjudicating sexual assault or sexual misconduct of any kind, so including harassment on campus, um, schools were going to be forced to use the preponderance of the evidence standard to do that. That's a 50.01% likelihood standard. And that differs, you know, wildly from, for instance, the one most people are used to, uh, the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, which is like a 98 to 99% certainty standard. Um, This uh, came as a real surprise to a lot of schools, and the reason it came as a real surprise is because uh, regulations like that, and and that was effectively a regulation, although OCR is arguing that it's not, uh, have to go through a procedure called notice and comment. Mm -hmm. And this is where it gets in the weeds, but it is is important. there's a law uh, you know, that, that came after the New Deal era called the Administrative Procedure Act that basically says if an executive branch agency is going to effectively change the requirements of a law, they have to at least give notice of what they're planning to do and give all the stakeholders uh, a chance to comment on it. Um, and OCR did not do that in this place. So it came as a surprise. A lot of schools were not using uh, preponderance of the evidence. They were using other standards, either beyond a reasonable doubt or more commonly a clear and convincing standard, kind of an 80 to 85 percent. Uh, certainty standard. And all of a sudden they were told, well, actually, no, Title IX requires using preponderance. And uh, my book goes through a few people. Uh, it actually opens with the example of a student who really got caught up in that um, when he was uh, basically put on trial by his campus, Stanford, uh, for 
uh, sexual misconduct. <clears throat> so that was that was kind of the warning that OCR was starting to go um, beyond its bounds. And um, and then in hold 20- on, yeah, hold on, I want to I want to cut you off a little bit. So the the concerns from a civil libertarian standpoint is that you're setting up a system for adjudicating uh, sexual assault, uh, sexual misconduct cases on campus that lowers the standard of evidence that um, provides for the opportunity for double jeopardy, the right for the That's accused. That's right. That was another part of it. And the accuser um, to appeal a verdict. Uh, rights in some cases for um, the accuser to not have to confront the accused, right? Yeah, it, it sort of um, warned schools against, although it didn't flatly ban cross-examination, um, mm-hmm. which is a real problem when credibility is at issue. Cross-examination is the traditional way we, we deal with that. Especially in um, these hear, hearsay cases. And, and Yeah, and, and these are these are literally, in some cases, he said, she said cases. Cross-examination is very important, and yet OCR said, well, actually, you should watch out for that and maybe maybe think about getting rid of that. Yeah, and and there are no, there are a number of other, you know, downstream effects right. for for um, for concerns over due process. But you said that I think the key thing that you said earlier is that OCR said that this isn't a new regulation. That's right. The, why the, why are yeah. they saying that? Because I think it it points to what you we were talking about earlier with the foundation of the 1972 Title IX law. The idea being that they're just reinterpreting it, but their their reinterpretation is new is news to us. <laughs> yeah, that, and and that's exactly the problem. That's why um, you know there we have these notice and comment provisions that they ignored. I, I think the reason that they did it, it through a dear colleague letter rather than uh, a normal notice and comment regulation, which by the way they were they would have been. Completely free to do. I mean, mm-hmm. they they are, they are uh, the rulemaking agency. They could have said, "Hey, uh, we're planning to require preponderance. Uh, we're giving you notice, all the stakeholders, and that would include you know, every university, probably faculty and students, and also civil libertarians like Fire uh, would have been able to, you know, make arguments for or against the new regulation." Um, yeah, the only conclusion I can come to is they thought that uh, that wouldn't work, um, that there would be too much resistance uh, to that requirement and that uh, they wouldn't be able to you know, push it through. And so instead, it came out as a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that that's where it really, um, you know, becomes a rule of law issue as well, because, you know, frankly, nobody elected OCR to change the law. Yeah. Um, you know, we we have decided through the Administrative Procedure Act, Congress gave administrative agencies the power to to effectively change some requirements of the law, basically where they can find ambiguities to interpret. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the ambiguity here would be like, what constitutes discrimination? You know, what what are what are the what's the nitty gritty? What are all the little details that go into trying to ensure that something is non-discriminatory? Um, and but they said, it, you know, the cost of that is that you have to run it by people first, and that's what OCR seems to have been very allergic to doing. Yeah. Well, Fire's fighting back against that 2011 Dear Colleague letter uh, through a sponsor, the sponsoring of a lawsuit. Uh, again, this isn't the free speech issue, but uh, do you want to tell us just very briefly how we're doing that? Sure. Um, we have two plaintiffs uh, in that lawsuit that is, that is being sponsored and funded by FIRE. Uh, one is a John Doe plaintiff uh, who graduated um, eventually um, from the University of Virginia Law School um, after being accused and going through a uh, – you know, a, a campus sort of kangaroo court on, um, you know, this this sexual misconduct charge. Um, what makes his case perfect to challenge um, the the 
interpretation that OCR is effectively using as law is that it was very clear from the uh, the the judges, and I, I say judge because the the person who wrote the opinion was actually a retired Supreme Court justice from uh, Pennsylvania that they had hired to do this, uh, made it very clear that she was only finding him responsible for sexual misconduct because of the preponderance of the evidence standard, and that, that because it was a low standard. Um, so that's one of the plaintiffs. The other one, and, and is, that, that's a fact. That's helpful because that means he has standing. It means well, we hope that. Means means he has standing. The government is arguing, and as, as we anticipated, that he doesn't have standing for you know a variety of sort of complicated reasons. But uh, it, it's basically a rule of thumb. Whenever you sue the government, the first thing they're going to argue, no matter what, is that you have no right to sue the government. <laughs> so, um, and, and often that's very successful. So, I mean, we, we obviously think we have the better of the argument there. We think we have you know a plaintiff who's as well situated as anybody. Um, but, you know, it, it's in many ways, it's, it's up to the judge. Um, you know, and the government gets a lot of deference for what it's doing, you know, for what it does. So, um, you know, nothing is a sure thing in litigation. Uh, but, you know, if anybody has uh, standing, it's probably, you know, if any student has standing, it's probably John Doe. Uh, the other group uh, that is uh, signed on is uh, the only university in America, and we talked to a number of them, uh, who was willing to come forward and actually challenge the regulation as a regulated entity, and that's Oklahoma Wesleyan University, a, a small religious college uh, out in Oklahoma um, who, you know, simply objects uh, to these these new regulations being passed without notice and comment. They would have liked to have have commented uh -huh. on them and they are opposed to them and so would like to challenge that. And the government is also arguing they don't have standing for a variety of pretty esoteric reasons but um you know we're, we're hopeful that we will get past the the standing phase i think you know we have a very good case there and uh, get to the merits um of the case yeah and we'll try and keep uh readers at the fire.org updated on that but this is a free speech podcast bring us up to 2013 robert the department of education used a different tool in this case to chill speech on campus yeah, and they've done it fairly effectively. Um, 2013 uh, brought what was what's, what's called the blueprint, and it's actually something they called it, the blueprint. Um, it was in a settlement with the University of Montana, which was going through a really horrendous, ugly sexual misconduct scandal with its football team and was really not in much of a position to uh, to argue uh, with OCR given what had happened. Um, OCR laid out, they said, well, this is this settlement is going to be a blueprint for colleges and universities across the nation to handle sexual misconduct on campus. And what's important about this is OCR went ahead and actually redefined uh, the term of sexual harassment. They uh, said that sexual harassment is any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature, and that includes verbal conduct, um, and that that's, that's the entirety of the definition. Um, if it's that, it's sexual harassment. Now, they did go, you know, further uh, with, you know, some prompting from fire later, and then they've, they've, they've mixed up that message a little bit by saying, well, you, only, you don't have to punish it, but you do have to define it as sexual harassment if it reaches that level. Um, we don't think there's any basis in law for that. Um, I suspect OCR probably also knows that, given that, once again, they did not try to do a notice and comment regulation. Instead, they uh, basically said in this settlement with Montana, this is how we're treating everybody from now on. This is what we expect from you. And, th and they're uh, saying that this is a requirement of Title IX? Well, they didn't. They didn't come out right out and say that, but that's the, you know, that is the implication of it. Yeah. Well, if sexual harassment is a form of sex discrimination, it's prohibited by Title IX. Ex exactly. And and for OCR to have any power over something, it has to uh, have something to do with one of the statutes that they enforce. So. 
OCR has no power to, uh, you know, impair your free speech or really do anything else unless they can construe it as a violation of Title IX. What they did uh, by defining sexual harassment as any unwelcome conduct of sexual nature, including verbal conduct. And to be clear, that means a dirty joke that somebody doesn't want to hear. Um, that, that means asking means someone out on a date. You know. Asking someone on a date who doesn't want to go, it could mean, you know, uh, somebody's watching, uh, you know, a film with nudity in it and you walk by. Anything like that uh, mm -hmm. could theoretically be that. It's a huge amount um, of, uh, you know, conduct that uh, or, or speech that people engage in all the time. If that's all sexual harassment, well, then guess what? OCR, thanks to Title IX or its interpretation of Title IX, now has power to regulate it. Yeah. Um, even if they even if they have to admit for constitutional reasons that they don't necessarily have to punish it, um, they are they are able to say, well, this is now your problem. So somebody tells a dirty joke, they repeat Amy Schumer or Chris Rock. Mm -hmm. Somebody doesn't like it. Well, guess what, University? This is now your problem. You got to deal with it. Yeah, and I think it's important. To, I don't think we need to do this for our listeners, but we have seen administrators say this. Title IX does not trump the Constitution. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I wish I could, you know, maybe I should wear a T-shirt or a hat or something that says that whenever I go to campus. But, um, you know, the, the Constitution, you, you cannot trump that um, if you are a college campus. And so um, regardless of what OCR seems to, to be saying about what sexual harassment is, um, you know, that, that's not necessarily up to them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just automatic deference to them, while it seems like the, the least risky thing to do, can also be the morally and, and legally wrong thing to do. Yeah. And we're seeing since 2013, uh, and we saw this, as I mentioned, and as you mentioned before, we saw the, these overbroad and vague harassment codes throughout the, 90, the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. But we've really seen the... Um, paranoia over enforcing OCR's interpretation of Title IX hit, hit a new level in recent years. And you talk about a couple of stories in your broadside, Twisting Title IX, uh, particularly the story of Laura Kipnis. And then I also want you to talk about the story, <laughs> sort of bizarre story at Oregon. Yeah, well, um, you know, these are two, and I'll, I'll try to be as brief as I can, but Laura Kipnis uh, made the mistake of writing a uh, an op-ed or a column for the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, about Title IX and sort of criticizing uh, Northwestern University's interpretation of it, uh, after which she was charged with violating Title IX. Uh, by right by simply writing that column because uh, the idea was that somehow it was discriminatory uh, against folks who might want to make Title IX uh, arguments, you know, things along those lines. It was not a very coherent uh, argument they were making against her, but it shows, you know, just how dangerous it's become because Northwestern snapped into action. These students made a complaint against her. Northwestern hired some out-of-town attorneys uh, to come in. They investigated her for, for more than two months, um, you know, various Skype things, I think maybe a little bit in person, uh, sort of investigating everything. When her, um, her support, she was allowed a support person during this process. When he went to the faculty senate and said he thought this was wrong, they actually banned him from being a support person and hit him with a Title IX charge as well. Mm -hmm. um, and and eventually, the only way that this ended um, was she got fed up and wrote a follow-up column in the Chronicle of Higher Education called My Title IX Inquisition. And uh, a day or two later, uh, all of the charges were dropped against her. Well, they tried um, to put a gag order on her. 
right? they did. They yeah, they they had tried to gag her at one point. Um, obviously they were trying to gag her her support person. So, um, you know, all in the name of of sort of not retaliating. So, uh, really, I mean, it, it was a Rube Goldberg scheme that was put together. Um, and, and really, whose interest was being served besides the university? Oh, yeah. um, in that case, I mean, one has to one has to ask. I mean, certainly, um, you know, it, the the measures they took might you know reduce the the embarrassment to Northwestern, but I don't I don't you know see who else was helped by this. Yeah, and this um, is this is a scholar yeah. writing about a timely topic that has to deal with sex and who gets investigated under Title IX because that discussion maybe offended some other students. Uh, they thought was discriminatory. Yeah, you know, part of the part of the thing is that because there is so little, um, you know, respect for for due process or just basic fairness in these, she wasn't actually clear, and I, I think to this day is not really a hundred percent clear exactly what she's supposed to have done wrong. Like what about what she did mm-hmm. was wrong? That that was not something that was shared with her. Yeah. Well, as you were saying earlier, with the blueprint over at the University of Montana, you know, even if this is constitutionally protected speech. You know, if the speech, you know, happens to fall within that very broad definition of unwelcome ver- verbal conduct of a sexual nature, and I mean her, her speech in this case was of a sexual nature. Um, yeah, even the investigate, I mean, the investigation itself is a punishment, uh, even if the university can't quote unquote punish it. Right? right, and and that's relying on the university to understand that it can't punish it, which which frankly OCR knows and Fire knows that they are not going to do. You know, th- mm. these investigations are not generally undertaken by attorneys who are, you know, really up on the First Amendment. These are these are done by student affairs administrators, you know, the fact finders if it comes to a trial, they're, you know, students and faculty. Um, this isn't, you know, professor this is not Floyd Abrams, you know, doing a or, or Eugene Volokh doing a constitutional mm-hmm. analysis. Um, this is universities seeing someone seeing that their uh, the the expression of that student is is now to be deemed sexual harassment, and then they're in the position of potentially telling the person complaining about it that yes, this person is a sexual harasser, and no, we're not going to do anything about it, which is you know politically completely ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, it, it's absurd to expect they're going to do that. Um, and, and what they're relying on is that when Americans hear sexual harassment, they think something serious. They don't think a dirty joke, like overheard a dirty joke. Um, they think, you know, groping or something mm-hmm. along those lines or, or, or these or quid pro quo thing where, you know, I'll, I'll give you a better grade if you have sex with me or something along those lines. So the OCR knows what it's doing there. And it really is quite a cynical ploy. And I, I wish I I wish I had more, uh, you know, optimism about what they're trying to do here, but I don't. Yeah. And they're encouraging colleges to be super risk adverse. I mean, you, you talk about the case at Oregon where, yeah, and this is a great example. It's a good segue into it. To, so to show you how far this goes, uh, this student who I, in the book, I call her Sarah Emerson. That's not a real name. Um, she was exam week, first night of exam week. She sees some, uh, folks outside, uh, her window, a couple, uh, man and woman. And, uh, she yells down at the woman out the window. I hit it first. Um, uh, meaning, and I've, I've had to explain this to, to several people that, that that's the, the implication there is that she had, you know, already you know, had sex with this, this guy. Yeah. That's um, a stupid sophomoric joke that 19 yeah. year olds make, you know? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so this is, this is not, this should not be a federal case, but it was, it was soon going to get close to becoming one. Right. Um, so th- this couple did not think that was funny. Um, they, they stormed into the dorm, demanded to see the RA, figured out whose window it was, uh, went up there, um, um, demanded an apology from her, uh, which they got. 
Um, she didn't know the couple. Um, she was just fooling around um, and thought that was over. But a few days later, she got hit with five conduct charges uh, for including, of course, sexual harassment um, for yelling that joke out the window. So, you know, sometimes people say, well, universities wouldn't abuse this or they wouldn't go so far. They, they know that dirty jokes aren't what OCR means. No, that is that is not, in fact, the case. They if somebody complains and it fits into that rule, uh, they are likely going to enforce it. Yeah. Well, fire's fighting back against this one in the same way we're fighting back against the 2011 letter. We've got a plan to push back on the 2013 resolution agreement with the University of Montana that the the Department of Education actually doubled down on, or the Department of Justice actually doubled down on. Together, yeah. They worked together on this. Yeah, and and in a recent letter to uh, the University of New Mexico, they they made the same – uh, you know, the, 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 they use the very same language. So the way we're taking this on um, is actually in a little bit different way. Rather than um, suing the Department of Education or Justice, um, this is in a case against Louisiana State University, which used uh, substantially identical language. I think there might be very slight differences in the language, but basically the exact same language um, in order to uh, strip of tenure and fire a tenured female uh, education professor for, you know, basically uh, using profanity um, and making some jokes in the course of teaching classes to grad students. Yeah. Um, and they, they uh, when when challenged on this, they cited that they, uh, they had to do this because of the Department of Education and what they were expecting to be considered sexual harassment. So uh, that, that case is in litigation right now. And, uh, you know, the, the wheels of justice are cranking forward slowly as usual. But uh, that case is against LSU. And um, if uh, Teresa Buchanan, again, in, a, in this lawsuit sponsored by FIRE, if she is uh, victorious, um, that will send a message uh, to everybody, but, you know, most hopefully to Departments of Education and Justice, that that language is, is not actually constitutional. And I, I'm very uh, optimistic about that, too, because I think um, it's quite obvious that the, uh, you know, a lot of protected speech is taken in by verbal conduct of a sexual nature. Uh, it's ridiculous to assume the government controls all of that speech. Yeah. Well, what's next, Robert? What's next in this this fight to preserve what we think should probably be the original intention of Title IX, which is to not go after constitutionally protected speech and uh, um, limit due process and fundamental fairness on campus. Well, uh, besides these two lawsuits, I mean— Well, obviously, everybody should buy my broadside available <laughs> uh, September 27th on Amazon.com. Um, but, um, you know, aside from that, I think ultimately uh, the best solution to this would be uh, legislation uh, from Congress that would rein in OCR's power— um, and their interpretations here. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to get anything through Congress, uh, obviously, um, but it's it's come to the point where OCR is really usurping the power of Congress. They are they are defining things that are really Congress's job to define. Um, and their answers, uh, when pulled in front of various congressional committees, because this hasn't gone unnoticed, have really been you know quite disappointing and I think unconvincing. So um, we're hopeful that um, you know in the next few years. Um, Congress will actually act to, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, define, you know, enshrine in written law, uh, the law that is already out there um, in Davis, I should say, it codify into law. Uh, the, the Davis standard would be a good uh, choice, maybe uh, reining in some of OCR's power to do these things um, or define things correctly. Um, the fact that OCR hasn't gone to Congress and, 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 you know, gone to allies in Congress and tried to get those uh, things passed into law, which would give them, you know, a, a 
the total imprimatur and, and a legitimate reason to do these things. Um, and, the, and the fact that it hasn't even gone through notice and comment, um, where really, I mean, they have to get comments from people, but they're free to ignore them as long as they explain why. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact they haven't done that suggests uh, pretty strongly that they don't think they could. Um, and they don't think it's popular and, and they don't think people are going to see it as right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful and that, you know, with with fires help, um, you know, Congress can get to a point where they they take some of that power back from OCR or or, or, or simply tell OCR, this is how we intend this uh, to be done. This that you have you have gone outside your bounds. This isn't what Congress intended. And you need to get back to, you know, actually enforcing civil rights rather than infringing on them. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, I'm sure we'll see more of these uh, Title IX abuse stories popping up. Um but, Robert, I want to keep you around. Uh, remind everyone, Robert's book, Twisting Title Nine, comes out on September 27th. It's available on Amazon right now for pre-order. The week of September 27th, we're going to have a special Title IX blog series on our website, thefire.org. So I encourage everyone to head over there if they're looking for more information. So I want to try something different with today's show. We've been asking listeners to call in questions for the past couple of episodes, and I want to play one of those questions today for Robert and I to respond to. It comes from David in Florida and involves a very important free speech concept, the idea of anonymous speech. So, Aaron, can you roll the tape? Hi, my name is David. I'm calling uh, uh, from Florida. Uh, My question relates to the relationship of anonymity to free speech. Uh, recently, the University of Northern Ken, uh, Kentucky, or Northern Kentucky University, rather, uh, there was an issue regarding a poster that went up, uh, basically posted anonymously and uh, for a group that didn't exist, but it posited an idea against uh, some orientation activities that were happening uh, during that week. And I'm wondering if FIRE has an, an idea or thoughts on uh, the relationship between free speech and anonymous speech. Uh, similarly, in the other uh, germ of this question is I, at my, when I was an undergraduate, there was a professor who had what he called a free speech board or window of his office, and any person was welcome to post whatever they wanted there. This was in the days before the internet. Uh, as long as they listed their name, and they also needed to say how long they wanted the, the idea up. Uh, but he wouldn't allow for anonymous posts. And again, so those, that's the root of my question is, what is FIRE's view regarding uh, anonymous free speech? Well, Robert, anonymous speech, important, not important, protected, and pro- not protected. Uh, important and protected, um, <laughs> you know, and and for very good reason. You know, a lot of a lot of folks are suspicious of anonymous speech, and uh, there's a function to that. Um, and that I think that it's right that people be a little bit more suspicious because obviously you can't trace the source. Um, but there are also places um, and times uh, where anonymous speech is extremely appropriate and extremely important. And, and probably the most famous of those times uh, was around the time of the American Revolution, uh, where many of the pro-revolutionary tracts uh, were published either anonymously or pseudonymously, that is under you know a, a false name, um, you know, in order to get that message out but but you know avoid the British retaliation uh, that would surely come uh, obviously Thomas Paine's common sense is probably um, the the most famous of those pamphlets it was originally printed uh, anonymously again for very good reason uh, it was not something the British would have appreciated um, and there's another you know also from the the founding times though not the revolution um, 
the Federalist Papers uh, were written pseudonymously under the name Publius, even though they were written by three three people, Madison, Hamilton, and Jay. And the reason they did that is because uh, for a, another purpose, anonymous speech is to separate the identity of the speaker from the message they are trying to communicate. Um, you know that, that forcing that, people to engage with the ideas. That's right. You force people to engage with the ideas instead of say, well, you know what, Jay's my guy. Um, so I'm just going to agree with what he says. Um, or, you know, I, I tend to agree with Hamilton, so he's probably right in, you know, this particular, you know, Federalist paper. Um, instead of doing that, they wanted to actually uh, make, force people to engage the ideas. And so anonymous speech, you know, those are two very obvious and important functions. I think uh, to go to the caller's question at Northern Kentucky University, um, what what was at issue there was a, a, a satirical uh, flyer that had been posted uh, for a um, a welcome white week that was satirizing a, a real flyer that was posted that said it was welcome black week. Um, and I guess it was, uh, you know, welcome back um, activities aimed at African-Americans on campus. So I guess uh, somebody decided to make fun of that and put up a welcome white week uh, flyer that looked almost identical, um, but, you know, had, had flipped those certain things. Um, and, you know, often satire is another thing that happens anonymously. And, and, and the reason for that is that satire is one of the one of the things that the authorities and, and the people being satirized hate most of all. I mean, it, it, there's very little that bites more than satire. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's important that people have uh, the right uh, to do that. As for the uh, the other thing he brought up, which was his professor's free speech wall, um, you know, there's also a place um, for creating forums where uh, you encourage people to say whatever they want, but they need to say it under their real name. And again, um, that's to, uh, you know, as opposed to force people to just simply engage the ideas. I think there the idea is to say, um, you need to take, you need to take, you know, credit or, or blame, I guess, either way, responsibility uh, for what's being said here so that uh, somebody knows uh, who to confront and, and that you will be made to defend your ideas. Um, so those are two sorts of, of different kinds of forums. I think there's, there's good uses uh, for both of them. And, and certainly a, a professor is free to create um, a forum on his door that would either be totally anonymous or, you know, like you said, say anything, but you have to put your name. Um, but when it comes to, you know, public universities and private universities that claim to, to have similar rights to the First Amendment, uh, anonymous speech is something that they, they do need to have a place for. Um, and, you know, it may be frustrating. People may say things that are unpopular and, and universities want to go after them and uh, and punish them. But and frankly, I mean, that's precisely what the British want to do. That's, that's simply not a good enough reason uh, to prevent anonymous speech. I really like that you brought up satire because one of the most the one of the biggest free speech stories in the past couple of days is that uh, Kim Jong Un in North Korea has banned sarcasm. <laughs> um, how you do that, I don't know. If there's going to be a country in the world that does it, it'd probably be North yeah, it Korea. Yeah, makes it stick. It would be them. But I mean, exactly because it is so biting and it is so effective, and it has the, um, it also has the the sort of subversive nature. And of course, I, I doubt they care much for subversion in North Korea. <laughs> um, it has that subversive nature that if you just quote it or you hear somebody saying, "Oh yeah, that Kim Jong Kim Jong Un guy is super great." Um, you know, it doesn't capture the tone, and yet how do you enforce that? You just said the guy was super great. Um, same thing with, you know, satire like that, Welcome White Week. It makes people say, well, is this, you know, if I would object to this, why would I not object to this other thing? Um, so it, it's a powerful tool, um, and, you know, it doesn't surprise me that dictators would, would you know, want to – I'd never heard of banning sarcasm before, but, but satire is really a more just a more sophisticated version of sarcasm. Yeah.
Yeah. Well, Robert, I appreciate you coming on the show to talk about your forthcoming book, Twisting Title IX, which is about the history and current abuses of Title IX. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese and Chris Maltby. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at sotospeakatthefire.org, or call in a question like David did at 215-315-0100. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating us and posting a review at iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.